0: We're going to be in Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, it's a little hot. If you turn with me there to Luke 15, we'll be, um, I'll read just the first three verses and then we're going to hop down to verse 11. Um, feel free if you have your Bible or if you don't have a Bible to follow with me on the screen. This is Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Hop down to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father. I'll say to him, Father... But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look! These many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, uh, we are here with your book open before us, and this story that you tell um, is familiar, so familiar to many of us, and I pray for open ears to hear it fresh. Because there are many of us here who are like, we got a, a little bit of a prodigal in us. And some of us here who have a lot of the elder brother in us. And we need to come into a fresh understanding of your lavish, decadent, generous love. Your mercy that doesn't run out. We, we, we both need to hear this good news. Um, the welcome. We need to receive the welcome of the Father again. And so I pray that that would happen this morning because we need his joy. Uh, We need his joy to be ours. And so I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if I haven't met you, I'm Victor. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, And every month we have been taking a week to focus on a spiritual practice or discipline. Um, these, these disciplines, not to earn God's favor or his love, but these things to assist us in our walk with Jesus. So in January, it was, uh, we focused on reading God's word. In February, corporate worship. In March, fasting, which was appropriate because we, we were in Lent, the season of Lent. And in April, or really the whole season of Eastertide, we'll consider this practice of feasting, feasting. Some of you might think that that is peculiar. How can eating food be a spiritual practice? Something so human, so bodily. How can filling our stomachs have anything to do with filling our souls? How can, what does food have to do with following Jesus? Jesus, he saw the two As very much connected. And the way he ate and who he ate with, it it angered a lot of people. The pastors and professional um, religious people of his day didn't like the company that Jesus kept, the people that he broke bread with. And we see this at the beginning of Luke 15. I'll read it again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes, what did they do? grumbled. They grumbled, saying this man receives sinners and eats with them. How does Jesus respond to their accusations, to their grumbling? He tells them a story. Jesus tells them three parables that reveal why he'd eat with such questionable folk like tax collectors. And through his story telling, Jesus reveals that when he eats a meal— with others. He's doing theology. Let me explain that. His table manners, his dinner guests reveal what he believes about God, about God's heart, his posture towards the world. And so Jesus, he didn't only say things like, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He He not only said things like that, he spent his hours and meals with those people instead of the well-to-do, the self-righteous, and self-sufficient. So his answer to their accusations about his dinner guests was essentially, you are who you eat with. Or as Brian Housen corrected me, you are with whom you eat And he's saying, I am a God with whose heart goes out to the outcast. That's where my heart is, and that is why I keep the company I keep. And the same is true for us. How we relate to food and who we eat with, it surprisingly reveals what we believe about God and our neighbor and ourselves. And sadly, our relationship with food and who we invite or don't invite to dinner... It exposes our immaturity and how far we have to go with Jesus still. So feasting is a very important spiritual practice and one that we need to take up and let us shape maybe more than we thought. And so we'll consider feasting as a a practice and find that our text, it shows that it should do at least three things. First, feasting should remind us what we're made for. It should display the lavish love of the Father, and finally, it should squash our self righteousness. I tried to come up with food items for each point, but I spent like three hours, and I couldn't. I could only come up with squash. So, our first, uh, our first point: um, feasting should remind us what we're made for. So, look at verses eleven through thirteen. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So the younger son thinks that the good life is one without constraints, without anybody telling him what to do how to live. The good life is one of self-sufficiency and independence. So he severs ties with his dad, takes his share of the inheritance, and gets out of Dodge. He looks to the father's stuff, the material world, to satisfy him, to fill his soul. And we can look at food and other created things, even good things this way, right? It's kind of an end in itself, we indulge, we stuff, but we never seem to have enough. What promises to fill us, to satisfy us, never does. What offers us life ends up being a counterfeit. I'm sure you've experienced that. And that's, um, that's because food, drink, sex, work, hobby, play, sports, clothing, those things were never meant to fill us. And often it isn't until life falls apart that we realize the powerlessness of these things to satisfy us. And that's what happens to the younger brother. His money's all gone and then a severe famine tanks the economy and the young man realizes how needy and alone he is. And so he gets desperate. He hires himself out to a pig farmer. Which for a Jewish man, it would have been like his worst nightmare. Feeding pigs? A Jewish man would rather die because pigs are unclean animals. But then he starts to realize that maybe the pigs have it better than him. Because they at least get to eat three square meals a day. And so verse 16, it it kind of ends this section and it's extremely bleak. Look there. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. That's a low place. Have you ever been there at one point where life, it just felt so sturdy? So, so sturdy. But then almost in the blink of an eye, it becomes this, you just feel vulnerable, alone, depressed, envious of pigs. Pigs. In these moments of desperation where we realize, man, we were mistaken. We were duped about the good life. Some of us we we might begin to see life with some more clarity. The son comes to his senses and what is the first thing he thinks about? What's the first thing that comes to his mind? Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. What does he remember? Bread. His father's bread. His hospitality. He thinks about his father's table. That's what feasting is supposed to do. Point us to something beyond itself. It reminds us what we're made for. We were made to belong. We were made to have fellowship, to to experience the fellowship of a table the commitment of family, the goodness of a meal with friends, the safety of being totally known, yet still completely loved. And I think our feasting, it should tap into the hunger that exists in every person's heart, a hunger to belong. Our tables should communicate that there is a place for you. You matter here. Nothing will change that. You belong. You have a seat. So when our neighbors find themselves in a bad place, when they stu- it, it should be our dining rooms. It should be this sanctuary, the Lord's table, our welcome, our hospitality that they think of and long for like the son when he came to his senses and remembered his father's bread. That's what they should think about. Because we were made for a feast. That's, I mean, this is where all history is careening towards. Um, towards this grand feast, this marriage suffer, supper of the Lamb. So consider Re- Revelation 19. It's the last book of the Bible. Almost the last chapter. And what do we find It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. Of the Lamb. Our feasting now should serve as a foretaste and appetizer of this feast. This is how Jesus drew me to himself. I mean, this is my story. So I dated a girl at the end of high school, and her family, they just welcomed me in to their home. And every evening, the summer before I left for college, you would find me at their table, at their dinner table. And it wasn't anything fancy, but it was normal. It was safe. It was safe. And my relationship with this girl was utter trash. And her family knew that I was like a complete mess. But they welcomed me in as kind of one of their own, as a son. And slowly this sense of belonging, it seeped into me. Love, it just wasn't, it wasn't just an idea or an empty word. Love, it tasted like watermelon and grilled bratwurst and iced tea and corn off the cob. I mean, it tasted like that. I felt like I belonged at that table, maybe for the first time ever. And their love for me, their joy that I experienced there made me curious about their God. And our feasting, it should remind our guests what they're made for. It should soothe the deep loneliness of our neighbors and create a sense of safety and belonging that they not only experience in in the moment, but that sticks with them like smoke on their clothes and like chia seeds in their teeth. Isn't that so annoying? But it's all, they just stay there. It should stick with them for a long time so that when they find themselves eating with pigs, what do they think about? Our table, our bread. They think about our joy in the Lord, our love for them, which ultimately points them to our God who found us when we were lost. If that's the case, what should our feasting look and feel like? Well, that's our second point. Feasting should display the lavish love of the Father. So the son, he comes to his senses and then makes up his mind to return home, but not as a son, as a hired servant. And then a scene that's so familiar to many of us, but I just pray that you kind of see with fresh eyes. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, and embraced, and kissed him. The lost son has been found, and the father's heart, it just bursts with joy. So much joy that he makes himself look crazy. He breaks all protocol. He runs to meet his kid on the road. You know, oftentimes we invite people over to dinner and we, we make these insta worthy plates because we want to create in, in their minds this, this glorified image of ourselves. This could not be the further, the furthest thing from the father's mind. His concern isn't about what people think of him. No, his welcome, it doesn't matter if his welcome looks silly, if his conduct is unbecoming, his son is home. My boy. My boy is home. And then the scene moves quickly from here. The son tries to deliver his apology, right? But the father just won't have it. He, he interrupts him mid-speech and showers him with gifts. Bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. And then the climax. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. You know, a fattened calf, it was usually reserved for just extremely special occasions, like holidays, like the Day of Atonement kind of holiday. And part of me wonders if the father, though, was like fattening the calf in anticipation, just like hoping, I'm going to make this thing so fat so that when my son gets home, we're just going to feast together. It's like keeping a seat at the table ready for him, set, hoping his head would pop over the hill and his feet would find his way home. You know that the Lord thinks of you that way. His, his heart just bursts with joy in those micro moments where you, your heart returns to him. The father's response to his son returning home parallels the recklessness of the prodigal's wasteful living if it weren't for the celebratory nature of it. So the son's the son's behavior is reckless, it's selfish. The father's is generous. It's generous. He's just giving away his stuff because the one thing, the one thing that truly matters that has his heart is back. What captivated him what was lost is now found. And with this party, he wants to invite others into his joy. So he gets out the fancy china. He gets out the best wine, the fattened calf. I mean, can you imagine the sound, smells, the sights of this party? I think that we're supposed to. Because our feasting, it should, it should do similar things. Display this generous sensual, lavish love of the father that erupted into, his, into joy when his, his son returned. And I think that this is risky, right? Joy is vulnerable. We often don't know what to do when we encounter it. I mean, just think about your birthday parties where people are, are singing happy birthday to you, and it's like the only 30 seconds where people get out their phones and take the pictures and the videos. Have you ever watched yourself in those videos? You look so awkward because you don't know what to do with people's affection and joy and love. You're just like, happy birthday. Like, do you clap? Do you sing with them? No, it's so awkward because you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do in the presence of so much joy. And Crystal mentioned this on Easter morning and it just stuck with me. It's easier for many of us to observe the solemnity of Lent. Right? To enter into the the grief of it, the sadness of it. It's so much easier than, than trying to enter into the joy of Easter. The feasting of it, the laughter, the joy, the merriment. I mean, I'm a four on the Enneagram. Like, I find my comfort with my coffee and my sadness in my dark room. Can you guys relate? I don't know. And joy is a muscle that you and I have to exercise, right? But even the moodiest among us, hey shouldn't be dismayed at this. We can put on a happy face, but joy, it just doesn't come easily. We have to practice it. And the beautiful thing about it is that when you walk into the gymnasium of joy, one of the workout machines that you're going to find there is the table. And it's like the bench press of joy. It's always taken. There's, like It's the main workout of joy is sitting at a dinner table. Because feasting, it points us to the God that not only found us, but the God who loved us, loved us so much that he gave us like chocolate souffle and buffalo chicken dip and single origin coffee and chicken fried steak with mashed potatoes and gravy just dripping all over it. He's like the God who gave us, I don't know, what do you, what do you love? Green beans, okay. Uh, I can't relate to that, but sure. What? Cheesecake. Fri- yeah, I already said that. Um, salmon. Salmon, that's good. Yeah. He, he's that kind of God, this glad-hearted, generous God. He's in love and invested in the stuff that he has made. Enjoy. Um, well, yeah. And so, what do we do? You enjoy. You enjoy it. Slow down. Savor it. Feast. God communicates his love and puts his joy inside of you through the chewing of good food, the presence and commitment and laughter of friends around a table, the telling of stories, song and dance that pour out of our houses like love, spills over the edges of the Father's heart. These earthy things. I mean, joy is more than mere happiness because, yeah, it's, it's anchored to this ancient spiritual story of a God who will never leave you. Or forsake you. Having said that, joy is accessed in the very earthy, here and now, ordinary people, objects, rituals that we experience around a dinner table. So this kind of decadence and no holds barred joy that erupts at the tables of those who were lost but are now found. It can bring up strong emotions for some of us. And not just because we're unfamiliar or unpracticed. Our own pride. It can keep, can keep the joy of the feast from finding us. Because true joy. It can't, you can't make it. You can't manufacture it. It finds you. And you definitely can't experience the joy of being found. If you never thought that you were lost in the first place. And that's why feasting, it should squash our self-righteousness. This is our third point. So look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. Why wouldn't the older brother come to the table? It's because the brother's return, the father's welcome. It makes the older brother feel like all of his obeying was for nothing. Which begs the question, why was he serving the father in the first place? In his anger, the older brother's real intentions, they just start to like seep out of him. He accuses the father of unfairness. So look at verse 29. Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat, it's a weird thing to ask for, that I might celebrate with my friends. He's serving the father not to be with him or to enjoy him, but very similar to the prodigal at the beginning of the story, to get his stuff. The father sees this but remains unmoved. He, he's even gentle. He calls him son. And he reminds him that he's always with him and that he has access to all that's his. And it was fitting to celebrate because your lost brother is found. And then the parable ends, sort of abruptly. And we're left wondering, man, will the older son go in? Will he join the party? Will he lay down his self-righteousness and enter into the joy of his father? Will he come to the table? Will we come to the table? A table that might be full of folks whom we're tempted to consider beneath us. We have to. Because entering into the fellowship of feasting, the joy of those who were lost but are now found, we might be tempted to look at the messiness of their lives and the grace of our Lord and respond, I've served you for years. I've never disobeyed you. And the self-righteousness, pride, and entitlement of the elder brother will start to come out of us. I was sitting at a table with some good friends of mine and um, my friend was deep into pregnancy. Like third, like have a baby yesterday. And we were just eating there, minding our own business, enjoying good food. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, she did what my little boys like to call tooted. She just accidentally let one out. And It was interesting. You guys should laugh more at that. (laughs) My boys would be like, "Ah!" (laughs) and it was funny. But And we just laughed and went on about our business. Hey, can I have more bread? Sure. And it just made me think, you know, there's a lot going on in there. A lot of pressure building up, which makes it hard to hold it all in. And I think that the same is true for us. We all have a case of the self-righteous toots. And when we're invited, yeah, I, I said it. Can I, can I retire now? I've talked about toots in a sermon. And when we're invited to a table full of people that we would consider beneath us, these things start to come out of us. And it kind of sounds like this. Mercy, grace, smells. And these things, they start to come out, out of us. What will we do then? Will we stay outside of the party? Will we act like an insider when we're really not? Or will we laugh and say, man, I didn't know that that was in there. Will you forgive me? (laughs) And uh, pass the salt, please. (laughs) Friends, enter into the joy of the feast. Enter into the joy, the love of the Father who found you too, and let it squash your self-righteousness. So we're going to have an educational hour um, that that corresponds with this practice of feasting. And I just invite you to go to that um, starting today. It'll be in, uh, I believe, the family room. Um, And Randy Harris will talk—he'll go through the different scenes in in Luke and just look at the different meals that Jesus has with other people. But it's fitting. We're going to move to the table. And instead of just praying myself, I thought we could do a corporate prayer together. Um, and so we're going to say this prayer together, and I thought um, it was fitting because it's this, this prayer, it speaks so clearly to the significance of sitting down to a feast. And so I want you to say it almost with like a defiance, like you have like a cup of really good wine or juice in one hand and the sword of the Spirit in the other, So I'll lead, and then you guys can read the all portion. To gather joyfully is indeed a serious affair, for feasting and all enjoyments gratefully taken are, at their heart, acts of war. Celebrating this feast. But the joy of fellowship and the welcome and comfort of friends new and old and the celebration of these blessings of food and drink and conversation and laughter are the true evidences of things eternal and are the first fruits of that great glad joy that's to come and that will be unending. Let it be to us now a delight and a glad foretaste of his eternal kingdom. May this shared meal strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning, the world of joy and suffering of redemption. May this, our feast, fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision. May this feast be an echo of that great supper of the Lamb. Take joy, O King, in this our feast. Take joy, o King. All will be Nothing good and right and true will be lost forever. All good things will be restore, restored. Feast and be reminded. Take joy, little flock. Take joy. Let battle be joined. Now you who are loved by the Father, prepare your hearts, give yourselves wholly to this celebration of joy, to the glad company of saints, to the comforting fellowship of the Spirit, and to the abiding presence of Christ, who's seated among us, both as our host and as our honored guest, and yet still as our conquering King. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, take seat, take feast, Take delight. Amen. Amen. Friends, this meal was a gift that Jesus gave to his disciples. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Savor, feast on me. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. This table, table is, is not Grace Chapel's table. It's for those who, have been lo- who were lost and have been found.